Welcome everyone to episode 101, Loss of Function IPSCs. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're over the hump. How are you doing there, Dalen? We are over the hump. It's a new era. We're starting anew. And I don't like the title, loss of function. We're gaining function in the new era. Keeks, forget about all that loss of, I mean, I get it. Jack <laughs> Parent's going to tell us about loss of function, but come on. We're gaining function by losing function in the new era. We're gaining. Oh, okay? that's right. Let's gain. Let's be positive. We're going to turn over a new leaf for you here. <laughs> a Thank centennial, you. the next centennial of positivity. Yeah, I don't know. Let's not go that far. I don't need to be positive. I just want to gain. I want to accumulate. Gain. gain. All right. Okay. All for gaining, gaining. All right. Let's do this show. Getting down to business. Make sure all of you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you can also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, Follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes will automatically download to your phone. And as Dalen alluded to, we are going to have a great show today discussing a very cool discovery in the world of stem cell biology with Dr. Jack Parent from the University of Michigan. He recently reported a novel way to create loss-of-function stem cell lines using gene editing. CRISPR! And we're going to speak with him a little later to hear more about this technique. You ready to round it up, Dalen, before we actually get into it? Nearly ready. Nearly ready. Before we do, I just want to remind you guys, you listeners, that we want to know. We want to know what you think. We care about your brains and the little thoughts that are scurrying around in there. Please go to the website, stemcellpodcast.com, and click on the picture of the Starbucks mug to take our two-minute survey to let us know how we're doing, and what we can do to improve the show. You can also enter to win a $10 Starbucks card. And I'm going to tell you what, people, whoever wins, I'm going to supplement because we both know, all of us know, that 10 bucks at Starbucks gets you like <laughs> Frappuccino, all right? And we all know also that you guys are going through about seven or eight of those things in a day with your schedule. So I am going to personally supplement you with, yes, another $10 wow. from Starbucks. Oh! All right. All right. All right. All right. Back on point. Let's round it up, Kiki. Don't start thinking about Frappuccinos. I mean, you don't get to fill it up. Show me the money. Show me the Starbucks cards. That's right. No, no. Show me the roundup and the science. To start it all off, there is a paper out in science from the last week. That is pretty amazing and may lead to new methods for treatment of cancers and may also lead research to do a double take at past research into cancer and tumor formation and how it's treated by various cancer drugs. Turns out there are some bacteria that lurk in tumors, not all tumors, but some tumors, that have enzymes that can inactivate chemotherapy drugs. This specific report, researchers from the Weizmann School of Science in Israel and his team discovered a family of enzyme-producing microbes belonging to the gamma proteobacteria class. This includes E. coli and about 250 bacterial genera. Their enzyme, cytosine deaminase, converts gemcitabine, a chemotherapy drug commonly used to treat patients suffering from pancreatic, lung, breast, and bladder cancers, it, the enzyme breaks it down, breaks it down, makes it unable to kill tumor cells. So in dishes, they realized that human tumor cells and also in mouse studies that tumor cells were surviving gemcitabine treatment and that the reason was bacterial. So they looked at pancreatic tumors taken from human patients, also carrying the enzyme-producing bacteria. Of 113 pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma samples that were studied, 86 contained gemcitabine-inactivating bacteria. When 
Geller and his colleagues infected mice that had colon cancer with the enzyme-producing bacteria. Tumors grew rapidly in the infected mice that were treated with the gemcitabine, this chemotherapy drug, alone. But when they gave the mice antibiotics at the same time, they increased the number of tumor cells that went through apoptosis, which is programmed cell death, from about 15% to 60 or more. So suggestion is that from here on out, we might want to start looking at chemotherapy in conjunction with antibiotics for some cancer patients. And what does it mean for studies of different cancer drugs in the past that have been unsuccessful? Kind of some patients it works for and others not, but it has, so it's been mixed bag and, oh, we're not going to follow up on that drug because it doesn't really work. What if bacteria were the cause there? Yeah, you know, another layer that is occurring to me, as you say, it's, it's interesting. I don't know about maybe colon cancer isn't the same effect uh, in terms of the chemo that's used for that, but a lot of chemo has a myelosuppressive effect, which can then in turn lead to the proliferation of infections and bacteria that might otherwise be suppressed by the immune system. So it's kind of like the treatment is causing proliferation of the bacteria mm -hmm. that may be impeding the treatment, and then so far you want to ramp up the drug. So it's a vicious cycle that you may be able to neutralize just by co-administering antibiotics. So, I mean, that's a really deep insight. No wonder it's in science. Yep. And so as of yet, they have not advanced this to actually uh, treating humans with this combination. Still in animal testing and, you know, human cells in a dish. But hopefully this could be something that will change up treatment regimes and increase success for treatment. Something else that could change up your success in life is uh, how you eat to support your microbiome. I love the bacteria. They're bacteria. They're part of us. There are more bacteria on us and in us than our own cells. So it behooves us to try and figure out how to live with them better. And with the modern Western diet, people complain from many maladies like IBS, Crohn's disease, etc., that are digestion-related. And how much of that is a, an interplay between the bacteria that live within us and the digestive system and the genes that are at work in individuals. One way researchers are trying to figure out what our Western diet is actually doing to us, how it has changed us from our primitive ancestry, is actually looking at populations of isolated hunter-gatherers in Africa that still kind of adhere to this traditional way of life that our ancestors might have lived. They're looking at this group of people called the Hadza, and they live in Tanzania. And it turns out, according to a recent study, that the microbiota of these hunter-gatherers changes in composition depending on the season, because these hunter-gatherers are eating different foods depending on the season. Are there animals coming through the region? Are they eating more meat? Or are they relying more on nuts and berries and fibrous things? They have a much more varied diet and a diet with a much higher fiber content than we eat here in the United States. But the details here are pretty interesting. And even though there's no absolute link between, okay, the microbial composition of the Hadza makes them healthier or ours makes us less, less healthy, there isn't that link yet. We do know, based on this research, that there are definite differences in bacterial populations that exist in the Hadza microbiome compared to ours. The team compared the microbiomes of the Hadza to the microbiomes of 18 populations across 16 countries. And industrialized population microbiomes were dominated by bacteriodaceae, bacterioidaceae. This average is about 21% of the microbiome compared to 0.8% of the traditional biomes that were analyzed. And within the Hadza, there were two prevalent bacterial families that are really rare or completely undetected in people following non-traditional diets or industrial diets. The Hadza possessed more enzymes also to process plant carbohydrates. And in the, in the United States, we exhibit substantially more antibiotic-resistant genes than the microbiota 
of the Hadza. So the study tells us there are some very big differences between the traditional diet and our industrialized diet. And additionally, that the traditional diet had a lot of variation to it seasonally. And we don't do that ourselves in this modern Western world. So place to start, things to think about. Yeah, I think, you know, it's not necessarily a new idea that we culturally across the world, we kind of have co-evolved with our local flora and fauna. I think that includes the microbiome. And it's funny, you know, that whole Michael Pollan thing with the food, the new thinking on food. And I thought the great point to take away from that is that all there's all kinds of different diets in the world. If you look at the Inuits and they have this really narrow diet of, you know, seals and fat. They don't have a lot of greens and vegetables, but they've co-evolved with it. The one diet that is bad across the board, the Western diet. So, I mean, it's, it's no coincidence. Yeah. We've been with this diet for, you know, decades, whereas I think most cultures have lived with their diet and the microbiome that, are, you know, comprise it for generations and generations. So this kind of is supporting that idea. I don't know if it's encouraging, though, Kiki. I'm worried about my, the 21% of bacteriodocii that are hanging out in my belly right now. That's right. Eat more fiber, and I don't mean in the form of smoothies. <laughs> Maybe get some inulin in your diet. Maybe, you know, go gnaw on a tuber. Okay. <laughs> we need more prebiotic and probiotic foods in our diets. Okay, moving on from that, though. You know who is very excited to be out in this world? Me? Mm -hmm. No, six scientists who are free from their isolation on top of Hawaii's Mauna Loa volcano. September 17th, these scientists who were part of a NASA-funded experiment to stimulate the social isolation of a Mars mission and explore the resulting psychological effects tasted freedom. They were quarantined for eight months on a plane below the summit of Mauna Loa, the world's largest active volcano. And they were thrilled to be feasting on pineapple, mango, and papaya compared to the dried and powdered foods they had been eating in this simulation that had been uh, ongoing for that period of time. This was the fifth simulation out of six in a project known as High Seas, Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation. And the researchers, four men and two women, were stationed in a two-story, vinyl-covered dome. And it was located on Mount Aloha because it's very isolated, which was something they needed, and also because the soil of the volcano might be similar to the surface of Mars. And occasionally, the researchers simulated leaving the dome to do work. And in doing that, they had to travel in teams and go out wearing spacesuits. Their only communications with the outside world were email, and that email was subjected to a 20-minute delay, just like it would be if they were on Mars. They posted videos to a website as well, and the crew members additionally played games to measure their compatibility with each other, and they had to keep notes on their feelings. They also wore devices measuring voice levels and proximity to other individuals in the simulation, sensing whether or not they were avoiding each other, for example, or whether or not they were starting to go head-to-head -head in some kind of aggressive face-off. The study tested methods that explorers could use to cope with stress, such as virtual reality gadgets that permitted them to escape to other landscapes, which is a kind of interesting twist on the isolation, maybe using the virtual reality. So they were testing how the crew coped with stress, different ways they could cope with stress, and uh, the researchers, University of Hawaii's Kim Binstead, who is the principal investigator, said, we've learned for one thing that conflict, even in the best of teams, is going to arise. So what's really important is to have a crew that both as individuals and a group is really resilient, is able to look at that conflict and come back from it. The hope is to send people to Mars and also to assist with missions to other parts of the solar system and beyond that are manned. Wow. My bet is that none of those people ever talk to each other again. What do you think? <laughs> we are not friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you've read The Martian, but uh, in The Martian, the guy, the protagonist, uh, spoiler alert, he has to uh, grow potatoes using his own poop as fertilizer. I right. think they should have done that, too. I think they really should have tried that one. <laughs> 
I'm just weighing in here. Maybe that's sixth simulation. Try and uh, yes. use some of the methodology from the Martian. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and we need some imminent death in like right outside there too. That's part of the psychology of being on Mars. Kim yeah. Binstead, this is my armchair experimenting. I'm telling you how to do your job here. Yeah. Imminent death. Yeah, well, people have been going on. I mean, you know, sailors were sailing the seas of Earth and isolated from their friends and families and in tight quarters with small crews for years. We've been, I mean, this is what humans have been doing. Small bands of people traveled out of Africa to populate the world. This is not strange for us to think of sending small group of people to Mars or the moon or beyond. But what's interesting is the scientific study of psychological factors that are involved in, as she said, the resilience of the groups. How do you make the best team? Yeah, that co- it's going to cost however many billions. So you kind of want to deal with this kind of stuff on the front end, I guess. I got to end up my part of the roundup with some not so good news. I'm going to Debbie Downer it on the last part here. We have the latest version of the International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List report that came out on September 14th. This is the IUCN, and they track threatened organisms, various species around the globe. And the report reveals that while protection efforts appear to be slowing population declines of some threatened organisms, many others are facing serious declines. More than 25,000 of the 87,967 species cited in this update are nearing extinction. One of the most troubling are the populations of North America's ash trees, which are in a dramatic decline as a result of infections with invasive emerald ash borer beetles. And all but one of the continent's six species have been reclassified as critically endangered, one category away from extinction. Murphy Westwood, a member of the IUCN Global Tree Specialist Group who led this assessment, says that ash trees are essential to plant communities of the United States and have been a popular horticultural species. Their decline, which is likely to affect over 80% of the trees, will dramatically change the composition of both wild and urban forests. Additionally, we have the Christmas Island pipstrel, a bat that's endemic to the Australian territory. It's been officially declared extinct. Craig Hilton Taylor, head of the IUCN's Red List, told New Scientist magazine, it's very difficult to decide when a species definitely has gone extinct. We probably could have declared it extinct earlier, but we've been waiting for surveys. It's thought that the animal's decline may be due to a combination of habitat loss and predation by introduced species. But it's not all bad news. There's also been some good as well. Snow leopards of Central and South Asia are now only vulnerable as opposed to endangered. There's been many awareness programs and anti-poaching programs, and the numbers are increasing. Tom McCarthy from the big cat charity Panthera's Snow Leopard Program says that to be considered endangered, they must have fewer than 2,500 mature snow leopards, and they must be experiencing a high rate of decline. Both are now considered extremely unlikely, but that does not mean that snow leopards are safe or that it's a time to celebrate 25,000 species headed toward extinction. Ah. <laughs> That's not good. That's what are we going to do? How many of those are like species that I don't care about, though? I have to ask. Probably Sorry. many. I mean, like bacteria. Are those even on the list? Or are we talking about like animals? This is probably insects through animals. And there are many who are not, you know, the the popular species, the pretty species, the ones that are, you know, get a lot of TV media coverage. Yeah, no, they're not the prom king and queen. Many of them are what you would probably consider small and not very significant to human awareness, but that have massive influence in their connected environmental webs. Yeah. Conservation, you guys. You don't miss them so much as you miss what they do. You don't even know they're gone until the whole world collapses. Nice nice finish there, Kiki. Ta-da! <laughs> Going out with the whimper. <laughs> Tell me some good news. Do you have anything? Grim, grim whimper. Yeah, I got some stuff. I got some stuff. 
this is really, I think, a, a nice follow-up, the first story I have from last week's, our last episode with uh, Kevin McCormick from the CIRM. He was telling us about all these trials, everything that's in phase one and phase two that's drawing out of the CIRM. So, well, we got a story to put some kind of teeth into that. Scientists at UCLA have launched a genetically engineered blood stem cell trial. Okay, This is funded by $20 million in voter-approved funds out of CIRM. So this is the Eli Neal Broad Center for Regenerative Medicine Stem Cell Research at UCLA started a phase one clinical trial to test this new cancer treatment using adoptive T-cell immunotherapy and engineering blood stem cells to kind of hunt the cancer cells. Now, this is not totally revolutionary. A lot of these trials that have been in play, also known as this CAR-T therapy from Novartis, it was just approved from the FDA for actual use in Juno. A lot of new groups are coming into form with this new approach. This trial, which was approved by the US FDA last month, uses engineered blood-forming stem cells to produce white blood cells, T cells, that can hunt and target metastasized tumors that are associated with melanoma and sarcoma. And this is important because these tumors have really few treatment options and are highly resistant to current therapies. It's according to a quote from the UCLA researchers, the clinical trial will allow us to try a new approach that engineers the body's immune system to fight metastasized tumors similar to how it fights germs and viruses. This is from Dr. Anthony Ribas, who's the director of the clinical trial and a professor at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine, also a member of the UCLA Broad Stem Cell Research Center. So this isn't, you know, the first time UCLA has, has thrown their hat into the ring with clinical trial that may be approved to great profit. UCLA is banking it based on similar scientific studies. Last year, it sold a 44% share of the royalty interest for Extandi, which is a lead prostate cancer drug developed by campus researchers. They sold it to Royalty Farmer for about half a billion dollars. The current drug trial was supported by $20 million in grant funding from CIRM that was issued in 2012. So this is kind of the idea that Kevin McCormick was getting at. You know, the public funds these trials. It helps people. It circles back around in royalties, and everybody gets rich and healthy. I will say a cautionary note with these adoptive T-cell therapies that it's emerging now that there may be some complications to the administration, namely the cytokine release syndrome, where you have this massive mobilization of the cytokine response. And, and when you infiltrate the blood with these blood forming stem cells and their derivatives, and that can cause inflammation and massive edema and death. And recently a stem cell trial from Selectus using an off the shelf kind of T cell based therapy resulted in the death of a patient and they had to halt the trial. So we got to move forward carefully but I think this is a really promising new approach, and they're trying it out on all kinds of new cancer types to try and address these really resistant uh, tumors and you know hematological as well as solid tumors. And this is just one in a list of things with really high potential for impact in the field of cancer for a cure, Kiki, not just a treatment, a, a cure. cure. That I mean, that's that's the word you know that we always kind of shy away from, right? It's been so many years in discussion and still hoping. Wow. Put the money behind it. You say, how long are you clear? How long are you, you know, in mm-hmm. remission? You know, it's yeah. a, there's this notion that it's just always hanging over you. Yep. So this may be a way to that end. Although, be amazing. sorry, I don't want to be a downer like you. Creep. <laughs> Kiki downer. There we go. But I won't, I'm not going to go all in and say that these the residual cancer cells are, are not there. I have a sneaking suspicion. I know I'm not the only one that there may be some quiescent tumor cells that are evading these T cells uh, and come back, roaring back down the line. We'll see. We'll see. You know what I say. If I say it, it comes true. Yeah, but maybe there are lessons that can be learned from HIV treatment, you know, as they start to, you know, get into those quiescent viral, what's happening in the cells? How can we activate the quiescent aspects of cells or viruses? Yeah. Where they're hiding out. Get them to become active and then boom, hit them. Take them and kill him. That's right. All right. We're going to do it. You said it. That means it must be true. <laughs> Five to 10 years. <laughs> Next. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like what we're going to talk about with uh, Jack Parent today. I think a lot, and we talked about it with Thomas Schema the other day about tools, technology, and how it's pushing the field forward. 
you know, theory is one thing. We show that we can do something. And then I think the next challenge in, in applying it translationally in patients is showing that we can do it in a way that's practical and not dangerous. So let's talk about reprogramming. You know, IPS cells, everybody's going crazy. We've gone crazy for 10 years about these things. And it's emerged that there's a lot of liability involved with IPS reprogramming, namely the way that we make them, okay? There's a lot of ways that we've gone about making them, but a lot of times it involves a genetic manipulation. You know, the usual, typical, the Yamanaka factor way uses lentivirus to encode or enforce expression of these genes that have been implicated in cancer. And even the reprogramming process itself can lead to damage of the DNA leading to cancer or other kind of adverse effects. So for this reason, cells that are made in these traditional methods have to be carefully, carefully screened. And this can be limiting in terms of widespread application. If you have to develop a specific therapy for each patient and then screen it ad nauseum before you apply it, it gets really expensive, not to mention impractical. So this is a new way to make induced pluripotent stem cells that's been developed by scientists at Scripps Research Institute, led by Kristen Baldwin, who's the group leader there. And this is a major advance that uses, wait for it, antibodies. Who ever thought? You know, is there anything farther from acting inside the nucleus to reprogram than an antibody, something that's only going to go on the outside of the cell? Well, they did it. They screened a lentiviral library encoding more than 100 million secreted and membrane-bound single-chain antibodies. And they were able to show that some of these hits, particularly one hit, was able to replace either SOX2 or MYC in the reprogramming, and another antibody was able to replace OCT3-4. And it's not just the practical methodology here. It's much easier to generate a like monoclonal antibody that you can have an unlimited amount of, dump it on the cells and have them mediate this reprogramming process, or at least mitigate the amount of genetic material that you have to introduce, but also gives you some insight into alternate ways of reprogramming. In this case, they show that the one antibody that was able to replace SOX2 was acting via a membrane-associated factor called BASP1, and that by inhibiting this BASP1, it derepressed uh, its targets, which were WT, ESRRB, and LIN28, some of which have been implicated in the reprogramming process. So not just a technical means of programming in a way that may be clinically applicable, but a way that we've kind of gleaned some insight into how the membrane factors can impinge on the reprogramming apparatus in an adult cell. So a nice little study by Christian Baldwin. Now they're working on extending this to replace all of the reprogramming factors. They've done three out wow. of four. Now they're looking for the last one. And, you know, once we're there, I, I can see maybe much higher throughput and reliability of the reprogramming process, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, don't use viral things to get inside. Just go from the outside and let the cells machinery do the work. Work. Get the signaling cascade to start. Just hit that first domino, right? That's the key. If you can go upstream, right? And not only that, think about how we could apply this approach to a lot of other process. A hundred million antibodies? What? So, I mean, yeah. we could probably get try this in a lot of other processes. We got to throw this, run this by uh, Jack Parent. Maybe he'll do something silly with it. Maybe we'll talk with him about that. <laughs> but before we talk with Jack and other stuff, talk about everything, we're going to talk about what the stem cells talk about. The stem cells love to talk. It's the way they control the cells that are around them and kind of dictate the specific functions of the cells around them that can foster their own growth. Okay, so this is a story that comes out of Meduna, Vienna, from uh, Marcus Hengstlager's group. And what they're showing is that stem cells have to attract normal cells from surrounding body tissue using their own particular language or, you know, secretome, inductive machinery. They need to talk to the surrounding cells in order to recruit them and form teratomas, okay? Teratomas are the dreaded tumor that can arise from undifferentiated stem cells, and it's made it a really high bar 
to apply any kind of stem cell based therapy, the first thing you got to do is show that there's no undifferentiated residue there because those can get in there, multiply and form these teratomas that aren't necessarily malignant, but can definitely impede on function. Definitely don't want those in your spinal cord or your brain. Yeah. So yes, it's a dreaded side effect of stem cell therapy and something that needs to be addressed. But what these researchers are showing for the first time is that the formation of these teratomas is actually a result of a symbiosis between the stem cells themselves and the surrounding normal tissue. And not only were they able to demonstrate that these tumors were involved in a crosstalk or necessitated a crosstalk, but they're able to inhibit the formation of these teratomas by blockading this crosstalk signaling mechanism. So this may be a, a really practical means of mitigating the risk of teratoma formation in therapies. And I think that's pretty much the bottom line and impact of this approach is they're now applying this uh, blockade, signaling blockade, as an adjuvant in cell-based therapies to see if they can minimize the off-target or uh, malignant or unintended consequence of teratoma formation. So there you go. You know, sometimes you can be a little bit more aggressive as long as you have safeguards for mitigating the risk. And I think that's the kind of approach that they're using here. Yeah, I think, though, you know, we have so many, and there's so many areas in the body systemically that you want to maintain stem cell function, that communication function. So I would hope that this treatment along with the stem cell therapy, these implants, transplants, that it would be local and not be a widespread systemic effect and that you would just be affecting this tumor region or the area around, right local to the transplant. Absolutely. I mean, the idea that these other, the crosstalk is not recapitulated in other stem cell reservoirs, probably a bit far-fetched. So we got to be laser focused, laser targeted yes. with this approach. Yes. And maybe we'll get there. Maybe they'll get there. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just talking. All right. Last story. So IPS cells, uh, this is nice, a nice segue into our conversation with Jack Parent. This is a study using IPS cells to gain more insight into lisencephaly. Okay. Lisencephaly is a rare congenital developmental disease that can be caused by amongst other anomalies, a mutation in the DCX gene, okay? Affected individuals are born with serious developmental disabilities and a brain that is smooth instead of folded, okay? So researchers at the Kalinska Institute, led by Anna Falk, they're creating models, cell models of the human brain. And in a new study published in Molecular Psychiatry, they've described how cells from patients with lisencephaly differ from healthy cells. They use human IPS cells to model this, taking skin cells from patients affected with lisencephaly, and then they cultivated the cells derived from these patients in conditions that promoted neural stem cell differentiation and formed a suite of neurons that reflected those that are present in the patient's brain. And by examining these cells, they observed how the patient cells, the affected cells, behaved and developed from the stem cells to nerve cells, and they compared these with healthy controls. They found that the disease cells matured much more slowly. They sent out shorter projections and were less mobile. So this is to quote Dr. Falk, it's already known that DCX affects the ability of neurons to migrate, but we can now show that DCX plays a much greater, broader part in brain development than that, says Dr. Falk. Our hypothesis is that it's this, the damaged nerve cells resistance to maturation that causes disease. So they've created a new experimental framework. They have a phenotype in vitro, and they think that maybe they kind of get an underlying mechanism of the disease. And this is important because there's no really good animal models of lisencephaly. So this is kind of the only way to understand underlying pathogenesis. My question for Dr. Falk would be, you've gone so far as doing the IPS. So interesting approach may be to try and rescue the gene expression, see if it reverses the phenotype. But we're not quite there. Early studies. This is, I think, a great segue into what uh, Dr. Parent's doing. The difference being, in this case, I guess lisencephaly patients are relatively prevalent, but the genes underlying epilepsy and familial Mm -hmm. epilepsy, some of these cases, as I think Dr. Parent's going to talk to us about, it's difficult to get patient material. So you kind of have to make your patient in a dish. So I'm going to stop there, Keeks, and I think that might be a good lead-in to the doctor. Absolutely, yeah. Just to 
one comment, the fact that words lead to framing of ideas and how you think about a problem. The comment by Dr. Falk, that it's the damaged nerve cells resistance to maturation that causes the disease. That really strikes me as an important point that there's something about them, that mutation, this DCX mutation, that makes them resistant to the normal developmental process. It's just, it's an interesting way of thinking about it, I think. Yeah, I mean, the inroad there is if you can kind of foster them to move forward, you can, I guess, intercede, right? You can can solve it in a patient while their brain is developing. I think, you know, this is the future we're thinking of. We'll see if we get there. We will see with if we do. Absolutely. Before we get into our interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to let you know that genome editing just got easier with Cloner. Use Cloner from Stem Cell Technologies to increase the cloning efficiency of human pluripotent stem cells, HPSCs. Genome editing of HPSCs relies heavily on the survival of single cells to establish clonal cell lines. Cloner is a medium supplement that works with mTeser1 or Teaser E8. Unlike current methods, though, Cloner enables the robust generation of clonal cell lines without single cell adaptation. Therefore, it minimizes the risk of acquiring genetic abnormalities, which you really want if you're creating your cloned cell line. No abnormalities popping up in those clones. If you want to learn more about how Cloner works and how you can see if it'll work for you, go to www.stemcell.com cloner, spelled C-L-O-N-E-R. That's stemcell.com slash cloner. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Dr. Jack Parent. Dr. Parent is a professor of neurology, director of the Neurodevelopment and Regeneration Laboratory, and co-director of the Comprehensive Epilepsy Center in the University of Michigan Medical School. His current research interests include neural stem cell transplantation to treat brain injury and neurodegeneration and the modification of adult neural stem cells to promote brain repair after stroke or epilepsy to prevent epilepsy. He and his group recently published a paper on producing loss of function IPSCs rapidly using gene editing. Welcome to the show, Dr. Parent. Thank you for having me. We're really excited to have you. I've heard lots of talk about gain of function studies using CRISPR and other gene editing technology and the controversy around that. But there's so much to learn from loss of function, taking those genes away to see what's going on. But before we dig into that, can you just start off by telling the audience a little bit more detail about yourself and the focus of your work? So I grew up in New Jersey and did the coast to coast to coast thing. So I went to Stanford for undergrad, Yale for med school, and UCSF for neurology residency in my postdoc. And then in 2000, I ended up at the University of Michigan and started my lab there. Clinically, I'm an epileptologist. So I'm interested in understanding about epilepsy and how to better treat my patients in the lab. I do neuroscience and stem cell biology. Part of the lab focuses on adult neurogenesis in models of epilepsy and stroke. And then we use induced pluripotent stem cells derived from patients to do disease modeling on genetic epilepsies. These are severe childhood genetic epilepsies. So maybe as a lead into the, your recent paper, which kind of makes for a rationale, what is epilepsy? Is epilepsy, is it genetic? Is it a result of injury? How can we address epilepsy or how does it manifest and why? So it's all of the above. So there are many different types of epilepsies. Some are acquired from head injury or stroke or brain tumors. Others are from gene mutations. The hallmark of epilepsy is recurrent spontaneous seizures. And we're good at treating the symptom, the seizures, with anticonvulsant drugs. But we're not good at preventing epilepsy after a brain insult or when we know there's a predisposing mutation. Scientists in the field are trying to understand the mechanisms of epileptogenesis, how a normal brain turns into an epileptic brain and develops hyperexcitable neural networks. So from a developmental perspective, could you give us an example of a form of epilepsy that maybe you're born with or maybe is linked to familial epilepsy and like how it is in the brain? What's different about the brain in these inherited forms or these genetic forms that makes for this miswiring? So the original familial epilepsies that were discovered were mostly 
ion channel mutations or neurotransmitter receptors, which makes sense if you want to alter excitability intrinsically in neurons or by influencing synaptic connections. Those are important genes in those pathways. And with different ion channel mutations, we still don't understand how they cause hyperexcitability. So for example, loss of function mutations in sodium channels wouldn't be predicted to cause epilepsy because you need sodium channels for action potentials. So if you lose 50% of one of your sodium channels, you'd think you'd have decreased excitability, but instead these children have increased excitability and we're trying to understand why. One idea is if you lose activity only in interneurons, that would cause disinhibition and then you get too much excitability. But we're still trying to sort all that out. And then more recently, a lot of interest has been in de novo mutations. A lot of these aren't familial. They're de novo gene mutations, so only in the patient, not present in the parents. And that's becoming more and more common in these severe childhood epilepsies. Why would it become more common? That sounds... All of a sudden, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Let me rephrase. More commonly recognized. So we're... More commonly recognized. All right. Historically, uh, patients would come in with epilepsy and you would, there was no kind of why you're epileptic. Or if you couldn't establish a familial uh, connection, you would just say, hey, it's sometimes it's just spontaneously arises in your life. I feel like epilepsy is something that's underappreciated. Seems like, you know, you're under a dark cloud. Nobody understands. Some people are giving their kids these cannabinoids and it seems to be having a really potent effect on mitigating the symptoms. So I guess maybe it's just me, but I wonder if our audience too kind of lumps epilepsy into the presentation, the symptoms, but maybe the etiology is highly variable. Could you speak to that? Yes. So it's remarkably common. One in nine people have a seizure, you know, one in 25 will have epilepsy and there is a stigma attached to it. And the frustrating part of the disease is you never know when you're going to have a seizure. So it affects everything you do because you have to think, oh, I might be out in public and have a seizure and, you know, that'll be bad. So it's really a difficult disease. And a lot of times it gets lumped with the other symptoms of the disease. So a lot of children with intellectual disability and autism and epilepsy get thrown in the other groups. And so epilepsy is in a way underappreciated in that way. You also mentioned loss of function sodium channels. Are those natural mutations that are occurring that have been recognized? And if so, is that what you're modeling in your loss of function experiments? And then can you go on, can you address that from there? We're studying several different sodium channel gene mutations that are seen in epilepsy. Probably the most common is in the SCN1A gene, which encodes the NAB 1.1 sodium current. That causes Dravet syndrome, which is one of the more common genetic epilepsies. It's still rare. It's one in 15,000 or so children, but it's a severe epilepsy. We and other groups are studying it mainly with patient-derived neurons rather than gene editing, although we're also doing some gene editing. It's there are over 800 mutations in the SCN1A gene, and many of them are truncations. So it's clearly a haploinsufficiency disease. So you have one normal allele, one mutated allele. So you can model that with CRISPR gene editing to cause indels, although we've used more patient cells. We've done the CRISPR technique in SCN1B, which is alpha subunits make the ion channel poor. The beta subunits interact with the alpha subunits and affect gating and trafficking. If you have mutation in one beta allele, you have a milder epilepsy that's familial called genetic epilepsy with febrile seizures plus. But if you have both alleles mutated, then you have Dravet syndrome that looks similar to the SCN1A mutations. So we've knocked out both alleles with CRISPR to model that disease. That's very rare, so it's hard to find the patients. So it's nice to be able to generate our own virtual patients as well as isogenic controls. There's the punchline of the paper, right? You, in one shot, are reprogramming a normal patient, not normal, but unaffected cells, adult cells, and you're, in one shot, reprogramming them to iPS cells while also delivering the, the indel to these genes. And the, the reason for that is because you can't readily get primary material from patients. That's pretty much summarizing what you just said, sorry. But is that correct? Correct. And how does that follow? I mean, did you look at, and phenotypically, how, is there any kind of hallmarks of the disease that present in these cells or the derivatives of these cells? What's nice, when we started studying them in 2009, we quickly realized 
that we could model the hyperexcitability phenotype in vitro. So they have increased spontaneous activity and altered uh, sodium currents. We can, our collaborator does whole cell patch clamp recording to show the hyperexcitability. And we also record them on multi-electrode arrays and we see bursting activity. So it is a seizure-like phenotype in the dish, which is really nice. Was it simply not being able to get samples from the population that led you to approach it in this way? Or were there other factors that were involved? It was accessibility for some of the genes we want to study. It's also nice to be able to have an efficient way to make heterozygous and homozygous mutations at the same time. So with this approach, we've been able to do that. And what the next step is to be able to do it with two genes at the same time. For example, if we knock out SCN1A to cause a Dravet syndrome model, there's evidence that there's over, overcompensation by another subunit, SCN8A. And so we're going to try to knock that down as well to see if that blocks the hyperexcitability that we see. How is your efficiency? I mean, you in the paper, you say you've got this rapid generation of cells. What kind of efficiency are you getting? We get about uh, 30 to 60 reprogrammed colonies that have a mix of wild-type heterozygous and homozygous, and it's pretty consistent between different genes that we've knocked out. I guess uh, one of the big ideas with IPS, and especially in these kind of patient-specific cells that you're creating, although they do recapitulate the patient phenotype, is, of course, the drug screening. Is that one of the major rationales for this? Is there a way that you can dump some pharmacological library on these cells and find compounds? that might affect the patient phenotype, or is it difficult to transpose a pharmacological effect in cell culture to the patient seizures? So you're right on. That's exactly what we're trying to do, use precision therapy with the patient's own cells. The multi-electrode array recordings that we do are in 96 well plates, which it's not quite high throughput, but it's you know medium throughput, and we've been able to test drugs. So one thing we want to do is validate our models by testing drugs that we know work in the patients or don't work in the patients. And then we want to find new treatments because we don't have good treatments for these kids. And we've been able to do that actually with a different sodium channel that causes a gain of function mutation. And we think we've found a drug that we've been able to take to patients to, that seem to work better for their seizures. So we're pretty excited about that. Yeah. I mean, if you can find a drug that doesn't just dampen everything that's just the anti-seizure medication itself. If you can find a drug that's more of that arrow that goes directly to the root cause of what's going on, that's going to be so beneficial to the lives of the patients, wouldn't it? Right. And we're looking at effects on control cells, and the ideal drug will decrease excitability in the mutant cells without affecting the control neurons. Another thing we're doing that might be interesting to you, the most severe complication of epilepsy, the scariest uh, for families, is SUDEP, Sudden Unexpected Death in Epilepsy. So the typical story is a kid or young adult will go to bed at night and they'll be found dead in their bed in the morning. And almost all of these are that have been witnessed have been after convulsions, but we have no understanding of why some of these kids will have thousands of convulsions and then suddenly one of them will be the one that kills them. And a lot of these ion channels are not only expressed in brain, but they're expressed in heart. So from the IPS cells, we generate cardiac myocytes in these kids with ion channel mutations to try to understand if they're at risk for arrhythmia and if we can find a marker for this sudden death phenotype. I was just going to mention the IPS. Going to IPS cells is interesting because presumably are two questions. One, how modular is this? Reprogramming factors are the one thing and then the indels are the other. CRISPR can you do the INDA, the CRISPR combined with another reprogramming, a direct reprogramming approach? Because, uh, I mean, as you say, the rationale for going to IPS is you can generate neurons as well as cardiomyocytes. But I know a lot of our listeners may be wanting to adopt your approach to do direct reprogramming of whatever cell type and then try and address a rare patient population in a direct reprogram and genetically modified line as you have. So how modular is the approach for this dual intervention? That's an interesting question. I would be concerned that it might not be as applicable for some kind of direct reprogramming. We think one of the reasons it works so well is that the IPS reprogramming factors impart epigenetic modifications that kind of make the DNA accessible to the guide RNAs. 
So in fact, we tested our approach and compared it to just doing the CRISPR on iPS cells. And for genes that weren't highly expressed in iPS cells, the CRISPR worked better during the reprogramming than doing it in iPS cells. And I think the DNA becomes accessible with the iPS reprogramming using the Yamanaka factors. If you go directly from a fibroblast to a, a mature cell type, you might not get that opening of the chromatin. So when you generate the neural cells, is it just a generic neural cell with action potential? Or do you have to go find some deep tissue-specific subneuron to look at the kind of phenotypically affected cell type in these patients? So that's a, a good question. The field is definitely getting better and better at making specific types of neurons. So one of the most common is a dual SMAD inhibitor protocol that gives you excitatory cortical neurons, both deep and superficial layer. For our drug screening, we use neurogenin conditional expression, so a DOCS-inducible neurogenin-2 that uh, Thomas Sudoff published that makes superficial layer excitatory cortical neuron-like cells and gives you a very homogeneous population, which is really good for drug testing. For epilepsy, interneurons are also important, and there are different protocols for making interneurons, and we've been trying several of these protocols. They're very long, laborious, and difficult. So the most recent thing we're doing is making cerebral organoids that you can specify into excitatory and inhibitory interneurons. And then we want to study them in 3D, but also dissociate them for recordings in 2D. So I think that's one of the ways the field is moving. Have you found at all, is, are the brain's immune cells involved in, in any of this, in the signaling patterns that occur? So there's a lot of interest in inflammation and lots of different neurological disorders and epilepsy is one of them. And so a lot of people are studying microglial influences on neuronal excitability. Others have recently tried to argue that there are T-cell involved mechanisms in some of the human focal epilepsies. Obviously, those are harder to study in vitro with the iPS cells. And our eventual goal is to try to combine different cell types in the organoids, including brain microvascular endothelial cells and meningeal cells and microglia. So there are iPS protocols to generate microglia and microvascular endothelial cells, et cetera. So trying to get them all to coordinate in 3D is going to be a challenge, but a lot of groups are working on that. It's a challenge that everyone's up to. I think it's really interesting to go from the brain cells to the cardiac cells, maybe also involve the neural immune cells like the microglia and look at all the different cell types for these loss of function and gain of function sodium channel mutations to see, okay, at what point, where's the trigger? At what point are things going wrong in the system? Is it known that it is cardiac arrhythmia that causes the sudden death? Is it a, a brain-focused problem? It's not known. There's a lot of interest in brainstem respiratory centers causing the sudden death, but the autonomic. What's challenging is these ion channels are in brainstem neurons, they're in autonomic neurons, and they're in the heart. So sorting that out is difficult. We have animal models of these ion channels as well, but you know, I thought it'd be easy to see how animals die when you induce a seizure and there's only two ways to die. You stop breathing or your heart stops, but it's really ching to figure out what comes first and do the respiratory monitoring at the same time as the cardiac monitoring is at the same time as the EEG to look at seizures. It's hard, but a lot of groups are wading into that right now. So let me ask a question that I don't expect an answer beyond theory, because I think it's really far-fetched to have a cell-based therapy for this approach, but maybe I'm wrong. But if you were to deliver, let's say, CRISPR to cells in the brain to try and reverse or correct or change these um, haploinsufficiencies to rescue them? Like, could you theoretically even do that? What percentage of the cells would you have to hit? Is there a focal point where these seizures arise from and you could just hit that? Or is it so microscopic and multifactorial that, you know, you'll never really be able to completely address the origin of these hyperexcitable foci? I mean, that's a good question. We just had a debate on that at one of our epilepsy meetings. I think a lot of these genetic causes are, most of them are more widespread, and it's going to be tough to do a CRISPR approach like that and reach everything. One area people are looking at is using antisense oligos to alter gene expression in a lot of these cases. And I think there's precedent with spinal muscular atrophy for getting widespread expression of some of these antisense oligonucleotides. I think one of the epilepsies that will be targeted 
is focal cortical dysplasia is a big cause of epilepsy. So this is a malformation of cortical development that only affects a small portion of the brain where there's altered cortical lamination and abnormal balloon cells and dysmorphic neurons. So you can focally target that area. A lot of those are due to mTOR pathway abnormalities. And I think that'll be a, a big target for gene therapy as well. Yeah, that's something, Dalen, you got to keep your eye on with the IVF. You know, you're going to be screening the embryos or the parental chromosomes for certain gene mutations, crisper them up, fix them. Oh, well, the second part, I don't know about. I'll send them over to, to you. Kids with Back. epilepsy. When... One shot. <laughs> one shot. I send you some embryos. Right from the one beginning. Shot, reprogram them, de-epileptify them, and it'll be an amazing feat. Do mm -hmm. they do, speaking of that, though, is that part of the panel? Is there an appreciation of pre-implantation genetic screening for epilepsy, or is that not really well-defined in terms of monogenic cause? So a lot of companies have groups of epilepsy gene mutations that you can screen for, but these are rare. And so right now it's only after the children present with seizures, usually often in the first year of life that they get tested. So tell me about that, because I have a close friend and compatriot here at work who has a daughter who has suffers with febrile seizures. And I don't know what to tell her because it's, I mean, if it were my kid, I wouldn't be able to sleep, especially if the kid had a sniffle. But is that, I mean, the party line, because I talked to my mother, who's an emergency physician, she says it's, she'll grow out of it, is the common line. So there's these febrile seizures that manifest and, and then continue. And then there's febrile seizures that you grow out of. Can you provide so I have something to tell this woman who's panicking and can't sleep. What can I tell her about that? The vast majority of kids outgrow their febrile seizures. We worry a little more when it's febrile status epilepticus. So if the seizures go on for 30 minutes or more, or if they're very complicated focal seizures. But if it's just brief febrile convulsions and a couple of them, they'll, they'll she'll outgrow them and be fine. Wouldn't start doing the genetic testing just yet. How about just a weird question in the way seizures manifest? I've never witnessed one. I'm sure you must have. Is it you just, you, you faint or there's activity, right? And so that's like autonomic activity of the brain. What is the shaking, for lack of a better description? The common seizure you're thinking about, the common convulsion is called a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. So it has multiple phases. The first is a tonic phase where everything stiffens and there's really low amplitude rhythmic shaking. And then this evolves to a clonic phase that increases in amplitude and decreases in frequency. And almost all of them last less than two minutes. And this is motor cortex activating brainstem, corticospinal pathways and reticulospinal and other pathways that synchronize the activity. A lot of seizures start focally, and it depends where in the brain the seizure starts in terms of the symptom you'll have. So it can, if it starts in motor cortex, cause focal jerking of the contralateral limb, but it can cause deja vu or feeling outside your body or a rising feeling in the stomach. It all depends on where in the brain. What about the Tourette's? Is that a similar mechanism? No, totally different. That's a movement disorder, basal ganglia. So many interesting disorders that we have yet to really get to the heart of. And so with your work, with the gain of, with the loss of function work, hopefully we'll get steps closer to being able to treat people more effectively. That's the goal. Thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else as you're looking into the future, big lofty goals, advice for other neurology researchers wanting to look into this area? Some of my collaborators, my PhD colleagues, have gotten involved with some of these patient and family organizations for these kids with these severe diseases, and it's really inspired them. And I think that would be very useful for them to get involved with. And these organizations are always looking for scientists to talk to and uh, to be involved with their grant mechanisms and things like that. So I think that would be a great thing to do. Not the first thing I would think of. That's a nice piece of advice. That's got to be something that would keep people inspired when you get away from the genetics and the in-the-dish laboratory work and get back to the human side of what you're actually trying to do. Right. Seeing what the kids and families are dealing with. Yeah. Keep your work inspired by the problem at hand. Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. You are welcome.
This is eye-opening and very interesting, and I hope that your work does lead towards some great treatments. Thank you. All right, Kiki, that was Dr. Jack Parent, my man. He had a lot to say about epilepsy. I brought him a bit far afield because I'm just curious. You know, it's so true, the stigma attached to epilepsy. I remember a kid in my grade school when I was really young, I think I was in the fourth grade, had a seizure, and it's like the kid was radioactive for the rest of the time there. And I always, in retrospect, have felt so sad for people affected by this disease that has such a sociological component and the dread. You know, I had another friend who late in life was diagnosed and he could never, he's never driven a car since. Can you imagine? He can never yeah. get behind the wheel of a car. Not because they said he can't, but he doesn't trust himself. Yeah. So, Because you never know. Yeah, you never know. You never know. And then you have to, the only drugs that are really available are, as he said, the anti-seizure medications, which depress your brain activity generally. And so things, your brain doesn't work the same. That affects you personally. There's so many aspects of epilepsy that affect the person suffering from it and then also the people around them and others who are working on this problem of specifically finding these mutants and if we can use drug targeting to the mutants or even, you know, as we alluded to, potential gene therapy at some point. Man, changing people's lives is where we're headed. It would. Underappreciated. Underappreciated as a condition, I guess. Yeah, but I was inspired by his last statement as well. Yeah, yeah. Bring I mean, it back to the nice source. To hear that. Mm -hmm. It's nice to hear that from an investigator. You know, investigators these days, a lot of them in a hyper-competitive world, they're so focused on the grant that, you know, maybe it's nice to talk to the people affected by the disease once in a while. Kevin McCormick had something to say about that, too. That's right. And that kind of brings me to the rant, Keek. It does. It's time for our rant, our chance to complain. Ready? Yeah, yeah. Are you ready? What are we ranting about today? I'll tell you what we're going to rant about. We're talking about paying it backward. All right. Who are these PIs? You know, I'm, I'm going to do this very briefly, just anecdotally. I heard a story. It's been circulating about this amazing PI who's in line for all the prizes and telling a story about how a watershed moment in her life was when PI saved her and enabled her to make a major stride forward in her career by just sucking it up and dealing. And, you know, it got me to thinking about how important that is for a PI to take care of their people, their mentees. And I heard another back end of that story that that person who had the benefit of that PI's grace maybe has not done such a good job of paying it forward. No evidence for this. This is all anecdotal. I'm not even going to tell you who it is. But I'll tell you what I notice is that this climate of hyper-competition, it seems like PIs don't have room for anybody else in science. They want to use up a lot of postdocs. This is not all PIs. Some PIs are great. But a lot of PIs, they use you up. They take a grad student. They never want you to leave. They never want you to move one on until they're paper. taking everything. One, yeah, one more, more paper. paper. That's and then right. the postdoc, they use them up and flush them out. A lot of times, sometimes they're very supportive. But I don't see enough paying it forward. You know, Oprah said it. When you learn, teach. When you get, give. I don't see a lot paying it forward, Keeks. I know. And the idea of paying it forward is so important. It's that you gained something from someone helping you at one point in time. How can you help someone else, help their career? A rising tide lifts all ships, right? These idioms that we use are not just, you know, they're not just phrases of speech. They are ways that really can help us all. And when you see people taking and taking and using and using and not giving back, it hurts. And there's this, you know, you know, how do you reward someone who's not reciprocal? You know, it's just at a certain point, you know, I love the story of vampire bats. Vampire bats, they go out and they're basically every night they need to get a blood meal or they're going to die. And sometimes they live socially and communally. Sometimes certain individuals, they don't get a blood meal. And so members of the community will regurgitate part of their blood meal and feed the others who have not gotten food. So they'll survive because their metabolism is so high. They need to eat every night. But some individuals don't give back. You know, they keep taking and taking the blood meals and just kind of sucking off the other vampire bats. And eventually, you know what the vampire bats do? They stop giving to those blood suckers. <laughs> 
they remember those individuals and those individuals stop being helped. Yeah, I think though, sadly, in this case, the unfortunate consequence is that the postdocs and grad students have no power. So yeah. while the funding committees continue to give to the PIs, regardless of they give or, you know, trickle down to the, to the postdocs and grad students. So I don't know. I'm pretty concerned when vampire bats can be communal and PIs, <laughs> and PIs are all about themselves. That's so, right. Come on. You're worse than vampires. And from the female perspective, there's also an added struggle there because there are not enough female PIs in these positions of power. And so they struggle to maintain their power and their positions and potentially you know, we need more women. We need more women helping women in science. And so there, it's an even larger responsibility, I think, from for the women who have climbed through, who made it past the gauntlet and have positions in academia to help the women coming up below them, help them climb the ladder, give them support. We got to work this out. We can't fight amongst ourselves. We need to help each other. Dracula. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right, everyone. Be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. And do not forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com. I'm giving you $10. <laughs> That's right. You put your word out there. You're going to have to come through on that. But, Dalen, you know, that concludes... Episode 101. We don't have Dalmatians, but we do have this episode. And we will be back next week with 102. Be sure to tune in. <laughs>